Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 31st, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me, as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. And this time I say good morning, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is a key component of what we're just going to set up the show by, although that's not the reason we're having this show. We are at a highly unusual time. Um, I know we've had some afternoon kudzu vines, even some weekday afternoon kudzu vines, but I don't know that we've actually technically ever started one in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a good reason for that. And also, uh, Catherine hated she had to miss, but obviously she had a, a work commitment that she couldn't get around. I'm in the middle of my work break, I'll just be honest. Um, and so... We uh, had to have this time, though, because our guest joining us really early in the show, just any minute now, uh, Joe Lindsley, he is from, or he is in Ukraine. He's from the United States, uh, but and we'll talk about how he got over to Ukraine, but he was over in Ukraine prior to the war Ukraine started, and he has stayed over there, um, and he is covering that war. And I don't know that anybody is exactly doing the job he's doing while people obviously go over there and and cover the war and report back. He was already there, has continued to cover it, covers it, I guess, as much as a American can cover it. I mean, obviously people from Ukraine can have a more personal, long-lasting connection, but um, he has a far, far better connection than um, the average American, the average American reporter does. So we're excited to have Joe call in here and uh, just, like I said, any minute um, to discuss this um, conflict with us. Also, uh, we're going to discuss two other major topics, which we didn't even know would happen, one of which, of course, we would wish never would happen, but unfortunately in America, um, school shootings have become far too routine. But we are going to discuss the tragedy in Tennessee, as well as um, the indictment of Donald Trump coming down um, and, you know, getting a lot of headlines. Tim, we're going to talk about both of those in details, but I did want to kind of do a side topic just for a moment before Joe calls in. Do you think that obviously early in the week, and rightfully so, the school shooting in Tennessee – and Nashville is getting a ton of attention. Now the indictment of Donald Trump is getting, I won't say all of the attention, but an incredible, enormous share of the attention. Do you think that, um, unfortunately, not only this time, but every time we have a school shooting, the next thing seems to push it um, off the front page and just off the media's landscape too quickly? Well, I, it, it obviously did this time. I can't speak to every time 
uh, although memories are short with these sort of things. But this time, we just have something totally unprecedented in the indictment for the first time ever of a president of the United States, David. And I've been watching the news this morning, and it is just eating up the airwaves on all the cable news. And when, when there's news breaks on the major networks, everything is about this. So it's blown it it's blown it right out of the story, right out of the water. Yeah, and honestly, um, there was actually a school shooting in Denver just a few days ago that I don't even think really got any attention because mm-hmm. it's almost like you have to have some unique and different aspect to your school shooting to get any attention. Uh, and that is really, really a sad state of affairs um, that, you know, that what happened um, in Denver was, you know, to adults. Um, and it's like we've seen that before. And so um, it took the fact that, and I guess we can go ahead and start getting into this so we don't just have wasted air. Um, we uh, th- This was a private school, and this was a female shooter instead of a male, um, and so that made mm-hmm. it a bit different. Obviously, I think also the fact that it was an elementary school um, also I think grabs a little more attention at times as well. Um, you know, I, I guess people, some, you know, very naive, short-sighted people might have said, oh, well, you know, it's the public schools, not the private schools. This was a private school. This was actually at a church that this school was located at. Tim, how much do you think uh, that, um, I won't say changes the narrative, but wakes more people up to this narrative? Yeah, uh, it, it is un, unusual for, for the reasons you said. And, and then there's the uh, um, gender identification aspect unfortunately that came into this thing as as well and uh including from our own congresswoman um yes well well, tim uh let's stop right now and when we come back to this topic i know tim you've got a a, kind of a statement right off the bat that you're going to make but right now we're so excited to join us from ukraine uh reporter joe lindsley welcome to the show joe Hey, David, hello from Lviv in western Ukraine. Yes, western Ukraine. That kind of helps helps get a little geography in there. Well, uh, Joe, we're going to get into uh, what's happening in Ukraine um, in just a second, but let's just start off. Tell us a little bit first about your biography because we know you are an American. You were a journalist before you went over there. Yeah, I guess my 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 story. Uh, it's a, sometimes it can be a little bit bizarre, but um, I grew up in North Carolina, and, uh, and then when I went to work, I started my career at the the Weekly Standard magazine in Washington, uh, D.C. And then I became protege to the chairman and founder of Fox News, Roger Ailes. Uh, and and it was at age 24, I was sort of swept up into this high-powered media life and, and news corporation. Uh, perhaps the most powerful media empire in the world, and I worked with Fox News, and uh, and Mr. Ailes was sort of teaching me the dark arts of power, and uh, I saw a lot of stuff uh, up close, and after a couple of years, I decided um, we had different visions of truth and journalism, so I said I need to quit, but it's like the mafia. You can't just quit uh, that world, so I escaped in a car chase to the Hudson Valley, 
and uh, that set off uh, some quite amazing adventures through the years. And then several years ago, in 2018, uh, Showtime made a TV show about my old boss, Roger Ailes, uh, and they had an actor playing me uh, in some of the some of the episodes. Uh, and when that happened, I said, I'm going to leave America for a while and travel the world. Uh, and during those travels, uh, I came to Ukraine. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I, I came to Lviv in March 2020. I planned to be here for two weeks. Uh, and the borders closed for the pandemic. And I realized that, or I thought that Ukraine was probably going to be one of the freest countries in the world during the pandemic. Uh, so I stayed. And then when Russia invaded, I was preparing to leave Ukraine uh, early 2022, but when Russia invaded, I felt, you know, that this is the, like, I was made for that moment. Uh, I, I knew this country well. I was grateful to this country. Uh, and I said, I got to stay in Ukraine until the Russians leave. And as a journalist and reporter, uh, uh, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to get back my journalism career, I think, with, you know, but, but in a, in a, in, a, in a reformed manner from what I had known in New York. And, and so every day, uh, every weekday, I've been reporting on Chicago radio, WGN, uh, about 10 minutes a day as I travel through the country. And we have a volunteer team called Ukrainian Freedom News. Uh, it's ukrainianfreedomnews.com, uh, Ukrainians and foreigners. And we help uh, also, we help, you know, not only on the information level, but we help uh, raise money and get supplies to soldiers, hospitals, refugees and uh for these oh you know like 13 months now i've been traveling the country everywhere from Lviv to bakhmut uh and uh to to report on the reality uh, of of ukraine's uh, ukrainian struggle for freedom yes now would you i guess when you were coming up through and i have seen that dot the uh i guess mini series you were referring to so you were a local news reporter did you ever, when you were going through your journalism school at Notre Dame or growing up in North Carolina, did you ever predict that you would become essentially a war correspondent? Uh, no, no, I never imagined that. But uh, I guess, you know, in, in, uh, through, through my life, I guess I've always ended up with some kind of extraordinary experiences. And, um, I mean, the, the days when I was working uh, with Roger Ailes, you know, I have uh, so many crazy stories in that time. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, David, I was... Uh, when I was traveling the world uh, the past several years, I was trying to get away from all that, from that intrigue. And, you know, in Ukraine during the pandemic, uh, it was such a peaceful, lovely, prosperous country. And, 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 and I think it was, a, it was a nice place to hide from the turmoil in the rest of the world. Uh, and, and so I thought I had gotten away from that. Uh, but then reality, uh, you know, the awful reality of the war, uh, you know, showed up. And, but uh, – so it's not something I ever imagined, but I, I, every day of this, I, I felt that I was prepared. I was well prepared for this moment. Yes. Well, um, now let's actually get into, you know, what's going on. Um, I know early on, Russia, we assume one of the largest militaries still in the world, uh, invades Ukraine, a smaller country. Um, people, I guess, grimly predicted that um, – you know, Ukraine wouldn't stand much of a chance. This uh, has gone on for more than a year, and every report I see sounds like the um, Ukrainian army is defying expectations. First, tell me if that, you know, summary is anywhere near accurate, and if so, why has this happened? How has it happened? 
Yeah, well, I remember, uh, and it feels like 100 years ago, but last Feb- you know, February 2022, uh, in the weeks leading up to the war, you know, all the media, everyone was saying, all the experts were saying Ukraine was going to fall in just a few days. Uh, and, you know, I, in fact, uh, maybe a week after the full-scale invasion, uh, the, radio, the radio station in Chicago called me, and, and they, they invited me on the show, and they said, you know, we thought you were crazy before the invasion. Because I, I, I was telling everyone, I don't, everything I know about the Ukrainian character, uh, they love freedom so much that there's no way for a second they will, they will surrender. Um, and, and I think the world really underestimated that. Uh, well, I, I don't think. I know the world underestimated that. And, uh, you know, it's hard to remember now, but in those first, that first week, especially from February 24th into early March, uh, much of the world, much of the, the, the global political leaders were quiet about Ukraine. And when I, I had a lot of, you know, friends and sources in Washington, and I think many people were waiting, were kind of hoping that Ukraine would fall and the problem would go away. Uh, and, and then only when Ukrainians stood their ground, and then, uh, thanks to social media, you know, regular people around the world saw the awful images of destruction in places like Mariupol and Bucha. And I think that's what pushed uh, global leaders, whether in Washington or, or Paris and, and, and uh, London, uh, to to get behind Ukraine. In fact, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, he's a hero here in Ukraine. Everyone loves him because he was one of the first global leaders to make the difficult and at that time very dangerous journey to Kiev. And once you see the reality here, uh, you it's you know you, you, it, it's something that you can't have you know you, you it's going to haunt your dreams. And I, we've seen that with everyone that's come here to visit. Uh, they realize this is an evil that needs to be opposed. Uh, but I think part of the, the story that, and it's still that, you know, today is the 401st day uh, of Russia's, you know, big full-scale full war on Ukraine. And I say full-scale because in 2014, when the Ukrainian people uh, had their revolution of dignity, uh, the, the people took back, uh, they took control of their government from the elites, uh, from, from the pro-Moscow corrupt elites. And, uh, at that moment, Russia uh, tried to take over Ukraine, and they, they, Russia was much weaker back then, but they took Crimea and parts of the Donbass. But this story, um, you know, the world has seen the images of Ukrainian uh, heroism and, and the you know, Russian destruction of this country, but the story I think that still gets missed is, you know, what a strong democracy Ukraine had built. And the narrative seems to be, you know, we hear corruption, and that's all we hear about Ukraine, um, especially you know, before, before last year. But what I saw in Ukraine is actually a strong, in many ways, a stronger, healthier democracy than what we have in America. And, and because people could solve problems by speaking with each other, with, with less rage. And, um, and, and so th- this whole part, that whole part of the story of Ukraine, uh, I think has sadly been missed. In fact, I was listening to a very popular podcast uh, with a Navy SEAL veteran, uh, Sean Ryan. He was interviewing Andrew Bustamante, uh, also a, a CIA veteran, uh, and they were saying, oh, Ukraine is a third world country and it's not a democracy. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, this, this is a society where the people uh, govern themselves. Uh, in, in a, in, you know, and I saw this in the pandemic. Like, there were no massive protests in the pandemic. Uh, unlike many countries around the world, the government knew here that they could not, if they locked people in their houses, they would have a revolution. And so they never, they, they, they knew they could only go so far. And now we see the same spirit of democracy in the war, the way that, in many ways, the Ukrainian government was caught off guard uh, those first few weeks of the war. And it was the citizens working together, you know, citizens grabbing guns in Kyiv, 
uh, people making their own Molotov cocktails, um, citizens banding together to, to, to keep the country uh, from falling into Russian hands. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's the story that um, I hope more people would begin to understand, that Ukraine is really this amazing example of when, when, when human beings recognize that they have agency, that they don't have to live under someone else's control. Yes, you mentioned Crimea, and I may have not said it exactly. I hear it more the how you hear in the West, um, that Russia attacked and took over that area I guess, to get a seaport, and that probably didn't get nearly the attention it deserved. And they took that over and, and were able to, I guess, maintain it for several years. Then they got greedy and took more land. Let's say that the Ukrainian effort is rather successful and Russia just finally gives up on taking Ukraine in the hole. Do you think they will? that Ukraine will also get back control of those occupied lands in Crimea? That, see, this is one of the most difficult questions. Uh, you know, uh, up the, uh, the the president, uh, so the pro-Putin president of Ukraine, who the people uh, evicted from their country in 2014, uh, he was making deals with Russia, and they had uh, given Russia a, uh, a naval base in Crimea. And so Russia already had, and, uh, and they, they, they never had really fully left it since Soviet times. Uh, so Russia had a massive military presence. Uh, in Crimea, even when it was under Ukraine's uh, control. And, uh, and so it was pretty easy. Like, in those days after the Revolution of Dignity, uh, it really it was the, the people really took over their government. And there were, in, in the military, there were many uh, pro-Russian, Soviet-minded people. And so Ukraine was in a very weak spot. And so it was relatively easy for the Russians to take Crimea. Uh, many, the, the native people of the Crimean Peninsula, they're, they're Muslim Tartars. And uh, they've been historically oppressed uh, by Russia in, in imperial times and in the Soviet Union. In fact, Stalin had them deported. And then just in the past 20, 30 years, they were able to come back home, only then to be taken over by Russia again. And, and so many of the, the Muslim Tartar people are now, you know, for the past nine years, have been living in exile in Ukraine proper, but wanting to get back their homeland. Um, and and when, when, it was, when Crimea was part of Ukraine, uh, it had an autonomous status. They had, you know, they, they, were, they were not a, uh, they had a little bit of independence within the Ukrainian system. Uh, and so this, but now the hard question is, you know, as, let, let's say Russia went, you know, somehow went back to the borders of February 24, uh, 2022. As long as Russia still has the Crimean Peninsula, the threat of invasion remains. Because, you know, and, and, and this is kind of what Russia would, once. I mean, that, you know, fine, you know, we can put a pause, uh, you know, on, 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 even if they put a pause on, on the major war, uh, they can use that time to, uh, you know, get more missiles, to further develop their resources, and Ukraine will always have this existential threat uh, hanging over it. And now Ukrainians now, uh, almost universally, uh, they, you know, they want to end this now. When they get victory, they want it to be real victory. Uh, in fact, uh, in, uh, I think it was May of last year, President Zelensky su- su- suggested maybe we could have a deal where Russia could keep Crimea, we can figure it out later. And, and you know, Ukraine, Ukrainians love free speech. Uh, they've been very unified and less critical of the government because of the war. But when Zelensky, President Zelensky said that, the people pushed back, and President Zelensky then clarified uh, and said, we, we need the whole country back. Otherwise, this is never going to stop. Okay, that that really clears that up. 
Um, I'm going to pass it to Tim, and if, the, if there's any things that I want to ask about after that, I'll I'll come back. So, um, Tim, I'll pass it to you for questions. Yeah. Good evening, Mr. Lindsley. Thank you for being with us. Thank um, you, Tim. You've written some about this, so I'm going to ask you right off the top. If Ukraine was provided with the most advanced weaponry, could it achieve a quick victory with its available manpower? Yeah, I, I think absolutely, because if you look at what Ukraine has done with, you know, older equipment, uh, and, 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 you know, the, the United States and other NATO countries have not given Ukraine long-range weapons, and, and even some of the weapons that are more capable of going long-range, uh, you, you know, the, the conditions are Ukraine could not really attack on Russian soil. And that's pretty amazing to think in the history of warfare. You know, Ukrainians have, besides a few uh, very subtle drone attacks on Russian air bases deep within Russia, uh, there's been almost nowhere in the Russian Federation that's actually been attacked uh, at all, you know, that has, been, that has felt the war in any way. Uh, it's, Ukrainians have only been pushing back against Russians on the territory of Ukraine that Russians have occupied. But if you look at, and I was speaking with a friend who's a, uh, a nuclear submarine veteran, uh, he's a volunteer here in Ukraine, and he said, you know, there's so much that the American military could learn from Ukrainians right now, because Ukraine has been, uh, especially since the revolution in 2014, they've become a very tech-savvy country. Uh, and going back to the Soviet times, they were the best engineers in the Soviet Union. Uh, and so young people in Ukraine, they take these very cheap drones, which is all they can get, and they make them much more high power. Uh, often these drones are, uh, are, are made in China, and the Ukrainians know how to uh, change the drones so that the Chinese can no longer hack them. Uh, so they're very, very smart with what they do. And, and, and that's why Ukraine's been able to, you know, not only, uh, you know, hold the ground, but, you know, take... Uh, to push the Russians back uh, uh, during these past 13 months. And so uh, the, the, the big question is, like, Ukrainians have proven, uh, you know, how adept they are in battle. They've proven how they, you know, what they can do with this equipment. In fact, this shipment of tanks from the, uh, from the United Kingdom, the Challenger 2 tanks, uh, has just arrived. Mm-hmm. And the British uh, military was praising the Ukrainians for how quickly they learned. Uh, we heard this story last wow. year that, Oh, Ukrainians won't be able to learn this complicated NATO stuff. But I think really underneath that is, 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 is a question that I think many people in Washington don't want us to ask very clearly. Uh, does Washington, uh, does, uh, you know, and, and, and do, do the people in the global uh, Western capitals, do they want a quick Ukrainian victory? And mm-hmm. some people are afraid of a quick Ukrainian victory because they have the mindset, say, uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who said, uh, he wrote in an article in The Spectator uh, last year, that the world needs Russia in the global equilibrium. It's kind of like people who are afraid to imagine a world without Russia. Uh, there's another group of people who are afraid of Putin's nuclear threats. And then, unfortunately, there are others who stand to profit from a long war. And, and so mm-hmm. Ukraine sits in the middle of this. And, you know, when I, when I listen to the American criticism of Ukraine, uh, I think some of that is rightly, you know, they're rightly critical of the war machine, uh, in the United States. I, my first job was working, you know, for the people that helped start the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I'm well acquainted with the war machine, and I, I fled that world. But uh, what, what, what mystifies me is that the people in America, and maybe my perspective is, is, is skewed on this, but who talk so much about freedom, I think are ignoring 
uh, too many of them are ignoring the story of Ukraine, which is people who actually are free and are willing to die for it. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the unique thing with this war is no Ukrainian is asking other nations to send soldiers. They said, just mm-hmm. give us the equipment and we'll, we'll do the hard work. And I think they've shown that they can do it. Okay. So you, you mentioned that you live in Lviv. Now, as you know, there was a whole lot of news uh, on American media about Lviv uh, early on in the war when it was uh, featured as a city, even in the West, that was not immune from missile attack. It was hit by some missiles. And then there were the images of train loads of refugees, refugees walking into the city, abandoning their cars, coming from the eastern part of the country. Uh, and and there, were, there were a whole lot of stories about Lviv. Uh, those stories, we don't see them much on American media anymore. So what is life like in the city of Lviv now? Yeah, and, you know, it's, you find it's amazing how human beings, when they're put in difficult situations, can adjust. Can adjust. Uh, and uh-huh. even going back to the summer, you know, you find uh, uh, ways to get through the routine. Um, the first few months, uh, you know, people did go to the, uh, uh, the bomb shelters often. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, you know, anyone who was here those first days, we expected Russian tanks to be coming down the streets. Uh, everyone was prepared with Molotov cocktails. Uh, Fortunately, things are much calmer now. Today is a beautiful spring day, blue sky. Uh, people are in the cafes, on the sidewalks. Um, the, there's many refugees from, from eastern Ukraine who are here now. You also have so many foreigners who come to help. Uh, this is sort of their, their first st- place where they stop. Uh, and so there's a great energy in the city. Uh, I will say, you know, if you look at the city, you'll say, oh, most things seem pretty normal. But uh, during the past months in the winter, here and throughout Ukraine, most people would go often every day, 12 hours without power, uh, no heat. Uh-huh. Uh, but these old buildings can kind of keep warm, and people found ways to survive. The Russians were unable to freeze out the Ukrainians. But, it, but if you look, so uh, if you, but if you were to walk through the city today, uh, it's, it's a beautiful European city, cobbled streets. Uh, you hear the, the they broadcast the choirs from the churches uh, and speakers on the squares and music in the streets, uh, people even dancing in the streets. But then if you know the people, everyone has a heaviness and a pain, um, especially right now, these past weeks. Uh, I was meeting uh, a couple of days ago with uh, friends who were soldiers. They were on a break from fighting uh, near Bakhmut. Uh, every single person here knows someone who's been killed, who's lost an arm or a leg uh, in battle or in a missile strike. Uh, and so the emotions are heavy. Here when I'm in Lviv, uh, people tend to be, they get a little bit sad and depressed about this. Straight, uh, interestingly, I spent uh, January and February in Kharkiv, uh, which is a city 30 miles from Russia. Uh, before mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the full invasion, it was the second biggest city in Ukraine. And, you know, there I don't, no one is depressed um, because they almost, uh, I would say the past month has been pretty quiet, but for a while when I was there every other day, Russia would send six to ten missiles. Uh, and, you know, I, I can still, as I talk about it to you now, I can hear those sounds uh, in every fiber of my being. It's a terrifying thing uh, just a few blocks from me. And, uh, and even during the missile strikes, people are going, going, going to work. Uh, the few people who stay there, they're cleaning the streets. They're sweeping up the debris. Uh, and so a city like Kharkiv, even in, you know, 
even as you, you know, some blocks are totally destroyed and people are still going about their lives. Uh, and, 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 and that, you know, as, if you're walking down the street and there's an alarm, air alarm sounding and you hear a missile striking nearby, no one runs or panics. And that gives everyone else such encouragement and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you one more question about a story that broke this week, and then I'll, I'll give it back to David. But President Zelensky has, as you know, invited Chinese President Xi Jinping to Ukraine. Um, why do you think that invitation was issued, and, and what is hoped to be accomplished by that? Yeah, this is something It's a big topic here, especially in Western uh-huh. Ukraine, um, because, uh, you know, the whole idea of Ukraine's 2014 revolution was uh, where the people have freedom to be whoever they want to say whatever they want and 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 ukrainians won that in 2014 through their peaceful organized protests which by the way unlike the protests in paris they didn't burn they're not they weren't burning things they didn't leave trash in the streets they were very self-disciplined and uh then that revolution was so effective it inspired the people of hong kong and up until the pandemic when, when they still had freedom in hong kong they would wave the american flag the hong kong flag the british flag and the ukrainian flag because the people of Hong Kong look to Ukraine as an example. You know, while the, the West is sort of making fun of Ukraine, corrupt, blah, 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 the people of Hong Kong, struggling for freedom, knew the true story. Uh, and so there is this deep connection between, for, for most Ukrainians, especially now when they're having to fight for freedom, uh, with people who are suffering around the world. And the rhetoric of Beijing about Taiwan is the same as the rhetoric of Putin against Ukraine. They, both Beijing and Moscow say that Taiwan and Ukraine have no right to exist, uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and they want to destroy these free countries. And so there is a lot of concern uh, about, like, there's an understanding why, why President Zelensky would say this, because, you know, the situation is very difficult. Uh, I mean, the amount of death, um, especially in the past few months, uh, Tim, the, the death toll is more than we can imagine. Uh, it's, just, it's awful. And, uh, and China you know, has influence, can have influence on Russia, but this is a very difficult life walk, and, and I know there is some frustration that even that, that, that President Zelensky would, would even consider talking to them, but that shows you how, you know, Ukraine needs all options it can get, but the, I, I'd say from the perspective of, of everyone I know here, uh, you got, if, if, you, if you're going to ask the West to help you stand up to tyranny, you've got to keep in mind those who are suffering, uh, in Hong Kong, the Muslim Uyghur people, uh, and, and the threats against the free nation of Taiwan. All right, sir, I thank you for that. And I also want to thank you for what you are doing over there, getting the word out to the world. Uh, and with that, I'm going to give it back to David. David? Thanks, sir. Well, um, I have one final question, and that was, um, especially early on when um, – Russia and Vladimir Putin um, invaded Ukraine. There were some in America, and particularly uh, even in our Congress, that were apologists for Vladimir Putin. I almost would argue that since Ukraine had been part of Russia, that this was, um, you know, rightfully an action they could take. What would you say to those Americans about how, really misguided that opinion is. 
Yeah, David, you know, that's been fine. Even people I know well and former colleagues of mine uh, sort of believe these ideas. The first thing I say, come visit Ukraine. You know, I, I, I know uh, old grandmothers that have come here bravely to help. So anyone who wants to see the truth is welcome to come visit. Uh, take that train and, and, and see the reality. Uh, they, you know, the Russian propaganda, going back to the KGB days, uh, when, you know, Putin was a KGB guy, is very effective. And Russia has painted uh, itself as a tr tr uh, defender of traditional values and, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, some kind of uh, lovely society. And, and these Americans who believe that, you know, these are Americans who love freedom and free speech. They have to realize that doesn't exist in Russia. Uh, and, and Ukraine is actually this, this quite lovely society where, you know, traditions are strong. Uh, the way Ukrainians celebrate Christmas, for example, is it goes on for many days. There's people sing songs everywhere in the cafes, even in the wartime, in the trenches. Uh, the way you greet each other uh, uh, during Easter season, which is coming up soon, uh, instead of saying hello, you say, uh, in the translation to English, you say, uh, Christ is risen, and then the response is, he is risen indeed. You hear that in the coffee shops. So this has been totally missed, I think, that there's this vibrant... Uh, you know, offensive culture uh, of Ukraine uh, has been sort of covered up by all the propaganda. But I, I think Ukraine is, as a friend, I was speaking with a friend who she spent many years working in Ukraine. She worked for the United States government. And she said uh, to me yesterday, the Ukrainians never lost what it meant to be human before capitalism took over. And, and so Ukrainians have this, uh, you know, it's a society where you can innovate, you can make a business, and, you know, it's very tech-savvy. Uh, but they have never lost their sense of community and family ties. And I actually think that it's what, you know, so many of the Americans I know who come here to volunteer uh, and to fight, whether, you know, they're, they're veterans or they're doctors, uh, some of them unfortunately have been killed and wounded. Uh, they, the ones who come here and survive, which is most of them, and as they go back home, they say they are sad to leave Ukraine because here was a society with such purpose and even such harmony and even joy. Uh, you know, I, I know in America now that there, there's lots of anger um, and, and there's a lot of problems to fix. You know, you don't see that anger uh, here. Uh, there, there's such, uh, in fact, you know, we, you can speak of the uh, victim mindset. Um, and Ukraine, you know, has good cause to be a victim. But you don't see that. I see people, you know, wanting to, to be victors and to win. And it's, on the other hand, it's Russia that's saying, oh, we're, you know, Russia's abused and attacked by the world. Um, Ukrainians have this, I would say, in many ways, a very American, you know, and, and, the, and maybe, I hope we're not losing this in America, but a can-do mentality uh, where you really believe in a, in a possibility of a lovely future through hard work, uh, but what they don't, what, what they have that I think we, we lack is it's not totally individualistic. Uh, they're very independent of government, but, but dependent on each other, on their, on their, on their churches and synagogues their, and, and, and their families and connect, uh, neighbors and connections. Uh, and, and that, I think that is the reason most deeply why Ukraine, especially those first days and weeks, why Ukraine was able to stand up to, you know, so-called second biggest military in the world, because of the way they can cooperate with each other uh, toward a common goal. Yes. Well, Joe, this has been so insightful. If people want to read more about it, um, where are the ways um, that they can – uh, read and hear your reporting. Well, if you go to ukrainianfreedomnews.com, uh, ukrainianfreedomnews.com, you can access our YouTube channel, our Telegram channel, 
and, and all the uh, Instagram and different ways to, to reach us or uh, to follow us. And every day uh, I post on, on YouTube and on UkrainianFreedomNews.com uh, my reports with uh, Bob Surratt of Chicago WGN Radio. It's sort of 10 minutes of storytelling uh, every day uh, from, from Ukraine, from everywhere I've traveled, from, from, from uh, uh, the battlefields uh, to, to, to Kiev and everywhere in between. So UkrainianFreedomNews.com. All right, that does sound like a great resource. And Joe, if either we need to have a an afternoon, early or late morning show, or you make it back to the U.S. when uh, seven o'clock at uh, night on a Sunday is doable, we'd love to have you back on because Yvonne, if it's not discussing this, maybe your book or something else. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing about war is you never know when there's going to be a bomb or an air alarm. So I'm used to you know, talking at any hour of the day, uh, so it's no problem to schedule something at, at strange hours. Uh, and uh, but I, I did make a rule that I will not, uh, and it was it was hard after one year of this to 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 consider this, but that I will stay here every day until until there's victory. So <laughs> I hope it'll be soon, but we'll see. Well, I certainly hope for the people of Ukraine it is very soon. And Joe, we thank you for coming on the show today. David, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Uh, Glory to to Ukraine. Ukraine. Thank you. That was Joe Lindsley, um, a reporter in um, the Ukraine. Uh, I think he was getting a call. He must have really scheduled it just perfectly uh, for that next call that we heard in the background. Um, But uh, just really that Ukrainian freedom news, um, it's probably going to be one of the more in-depth, if not the most in-depth source that we have, you know, it's American-based, if you will. Well, Tim, let's go ahead and turn back to America, a place that you should be able to go to school without being, you know, worried about getting fired upon, but sadly that is not the case. And let's go straight away to your outrage, and then we'll discuss things from there. Yeah, let's lead in here, David, with gun violence running amok. I want you to think about this, folks. Just in March alone, as of yesterday, I haven't included today, but just in March alone, there have been 39 mass shootings in this country, more than one a day. And remember, a mass shooting is one in which at least four people are shot. These things have exploded between 1994 and 2004. We had an assault weapons ban. And we only had one major mass shooting in all of that time that that was newsworthy, Columbine. Now, we know how to stop these. And, 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 and at least part of the people in this country just won't do it. Other countries do it. Let me give you just two examples. Japan has 127 million people. And they literally almost never have even 10 gun deaths in a year. In a couple of recent years, they've had none. Great Britain, which has a larger percentage of gun ownership, I suppose, than Japan does, uh, they have not reached 200 gun deaths in a calendar year since 2006 when they had exactly 200. Compare those countries, you you add those countries' populations together, you're 
uh, at about 240 million people, and, and, and I give you the numbers of gun deaths that they've had. Discounting war, there are about 250,000 gun deaths per year worldwide. Well, 18.4% of them are here. Why? We have 4% of the world's population. We own about half of the privately owned firearms, and our gun laws are among the most lenient laws of any industrialized country. Our gun deaths have increased by 16% just in the last four years. Why? More guns, less laws. Laws are being loosened in state legislatures. As the mass shooting unfolded this week, here's the outrage. As the mass shooting unfolded this week in Tennessee at Covenant School in Nashville, literally blocks away legislators were debating bills which, if they became law, would loosen already minimal gun laws Well, in shame, they announced that they've suspended those debates for the time being. Isn't that big of them? Hundreds of people protested at the state capitol in Nashville um, yesterday for tighter gun control, and I'm afraid they wasted their time. If they want to make a real difference, they should do one thing. Quit voting for Republicans. As long as they are not required to suffer at the ballot box for opposing meaningful gun control, then they're not going to change, and nothing is what is going to continue to happen after one of these terrible events occurs. So to you people listening today in Tennessee, You hear about Representative Tim Burchett from over in the 2nd District, what he said? He told a reporter when asked about it, well, we're not going to fix it. And when he was asked about, well, what role does Congress, can they play? He said, I don't don't see any real role that we could do other than mess things up. And finally, the same reporter asked him, well, you know, you have a small daughter. Uh, What about? Aren't you concerned about protecting kids like, you know, your little girl in school? To which he said, uh, well, we homeschool. You know, I've expressed enough outrage uh, over the months and, and I guess today about this. So, David, why don't you get in here now? And a good place for you to start, I think, is is, is uh, with the esteemed governor up there maybe and, and what he had to say. Yeah, and and I tell you, you think that eventually it'll hit close to home with someone, and they may say, "We've actually got to solve this because this is gonna this has become a problem that affects me." And one of the three adults that died, she was a substitute teacher there that day, and she was scheduled to have supper with the governor and the first lady of Tennessee, their family friends. I don't think this was like, oh, some special event and she was invited to. I think she's just coming over because they were close friends. If your close friend or your wife's close friend gets shot in a school mass shooting and you still say the guns are more important, I don't really understand you because I can't imagine 
an object being more important than a person that I call a friend. I, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just unfathomable that an object, let's not even call it a gun, let's just call it an object, a thing is more important to you than not just a human being that you don't know, a faceless human being, someone you know and were planning to dine with that night. Um, if that's not going to change you, I don't know what will. And, and, and once again, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Lee served term as governor, won re-election, and also, I don't think um, he can run again. I think they're term limited. So therefore, it's not like his political career. I mean, he has the freedom to just change if he chooses to change, and he's not going to be not worth to worry about winning re-election, and not that that should be that important anyway. I, it's just what's going to make these folks change. And back to that congressman you mentioned, you know, he can talk about, well, we homeschool our daughter. Is she going to go to home college? Is she going to get a home job, work from home? Um, is she going to go to a home concert? Because I'll tell you what, it is tragic as these school shootings are, and, and, and they keep happening, and, and schools are just become some perverse target for these events. I hearken back to that Las Vegas concert that mm-hmm. was out in the middle of open air. You know, we can talk about, oh, we've got to harden our doors, and we've got to, you know, make these panic rooms and blah, 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 blah. If we can't just stand out in nature because we're too worried about guns, what are we going to do? Because it's not like we can harden the doors to an open air, to, to places mm-hmm. like that. It, it, that's the well, only way is to regulate the guns when we talk about stuff like that. That's um, it. You know, and of course we've that's got Walmart it. and everything else where there's been a shooting. Yeah. Tim? Yeah, that's it, David. But they want to talk about everything except that. And I keep saying and and I don't say it lightly and I'm not saying it just to be saying something, but it's true. If we're gonna talk about gun violence in this country and guns, the guns themselves are not part of the discussion, we're not gonna get anything done. The the, mo, the the biggest selling gun in this country right now is the AR-15, and they're selling them as fast as they can. That woman, bless her heart, that did this was a, a, a mental patient, and she bought seven guns legally. What in God's hmm. name is wrong? Our, our, our children are at stake here, our little kids. And you mentioned the shootings. They're everywhere. Outdoors, grocery stores, Chinese dance clubs, gay night clubs, churches, no place is safe. Other countries that fix this, and we can't politically get it done. Final word to you, David. What do we do? I, I don't know what we do. And, and, you know, the Republicans, I mean, like that timber chip and, and others, and, and Tom Tom Massey from Kentucky, they just are coming at the most perverse statements and, and non-solutions. Um, you know, I, I've said this before after these tragedies. You know, sometimes Republicans will say, hey, mental illness, and this girl was definitely had mental illness issues. 
you know, I say if they said mental illness, let's pass a robust mental illness bill. And I said this two or three years ago. And so if the Republicans were right, and that was the solution, is if we could get better, better mental health care, then we would see a difference. And if it wasn't the solution or it was a wholly insufficient solution, then we could say, okay, we've tried the mental health, and probably people would be helped out of the mental health they got. It might not be the people that are going to do school shootings. It would just be people having better outcomes for their life. We could then say we've tried that. We've eliminated that as the root cause. Because I don't know if you right. saw that chart, but there's a term in statistics called the line of best fit, and it means mm-hmm. that your data points will align along a line, not perfectly on the line, but like you'll see it within a line. If you look at guns in a population and gun deaths or mass shootings, it's amazing how the line of best fit correlates throughout the world. And we actually have a few more than we should have, uh, which may mm-hmm. speak to some other things about the American psyche. Uh, but I thought that was very telling. Um, Tim, I tell you what, I, Joe was just so fascinating. And um, mm-hmm. I thought he, um, what, you know, I, 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 as long as he wanted to tell us about Ukraine, I was willing to listen. We really needed to talk about what happened in Tennessee in a timely manner. The other big issue of the week, Donald Trump, um, we're going to know more as it goes. And so when we come back right. next Sunday in about 10 days with Claire Constantine or Constantine uh, from uh, Kentucky uh, and Catherine back, we can probably have a more rich picture of what's actually happening there, both legally and politically. So I think for today, we're going to wrap it up and call it a show. All right. Sounds good. Good day, everybody. Good day, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for?